Residences which are pondside, lakeside, and riverside are highly desirable now, but that wasn't always true. This was especially true of rivers, and it was particularly true of the Connecticut River, which reaped a rich harvest of industrial pollutants and just plain old household garbage from factories and households along its banks in Massachusetts cities like Lowell, Lawrence, and Springfield. Connecticut contributed as well from factories like Bigelow Sanford in Frenchtown, Dexter's and Montgomery's in Windsor Locks, Hartford, Middletown, New Haven, Bridgeport, etc. Where trash disposal was concerned, it was ecological kick the can all the way down to Long Island Sound. People who lived fronting the river almost always did so out of necessity rather than choice. Just beyond the mill was a railroad overpass and then the Enfield-Suffield Bridge. Sandwiched in between the overpass and the bridge entrance was North River Street, about one half mile of narrow road squeezed between the river on one side and a high berm for train tracks on the other. If you lived on North River Street, you never bothered to look out of east-facing windows because all you saw was berm. The road didn't really end. It just sort of petered out, as if embarrassed to go any farther. Between the sound of frequent train traffic and the sometimes stench of polluted river water, North River Street would never be mistaken for prime real estate, even by Frenchtown standards. The few houses, like the people who inhabited them, could be described as hard scrabble. Their paint peeled. Their fences, where there were fences, were bent and broken from heavy plowed snow. Their shingles went missing here and there, leaving their roofs looking like so many gap-toothed smiles. The people were hard-working, honest, and God-fearing. But if you had occasion to be walking or driving slowly down North River Street, what you heard emanating from number 14 would surprise you. Muddy Waters, Blind Lemon Jefferson, Gatemouth Brown, Lightning Hopkins, John Lee Hooker, T-Bone Walker, B.B. King, and more, all lived in 14 North River Street in the person of Susie Spike Parker. Spike Parker was a complete anomaly in Frenchtown. Many people could say they knew of her, but no one actually knew her. The town records showed that the house was in her mother's name, but the bank records showed the mortgage in Spike's name. No one could remember seeing her mother at or around the house, or anyone other than Spike for that matter. She apparently lived alone, the second-to-last house on a street which terminated with Fred Gorski's used auto parts. Fred's house was backed by a barbed wire barrier which encircled a huge collection of junk vehicles cascading down the river slope into the river itself. If you wanted a 49 Chevy grill, you'd probably find it at Freddie G's, but you might have to don scuba gear to retrieve it. Fred was a fixture in the Teville Press a few years back when he and the town of Enfield locked horns over his business, which was technically on land zoned residential rather than commercial. Freddie G's contention was that his father had started the business before zoning was a factor, so the business should be grandfathered. As Spike was his only abutting neighbor, she was asked to attend. When questioned about how she felt living next to a junkyard, she said that she would tolerate his cars as long as he would tolerate her music. Spike and Freddie had gotten along ever since. In fact, he even offered for her to cherry-pick his collection free of charge. But he said he would have to charge her for the rental of his diving equipment. 
Once in a while, they'd crack a couple of beers, sit in lawn chairs facing Freddy's collection, and take turns shooting at river rats with an old twenty-two Freddy kept in his shed. When people use the other, it's usually in the context of referring to an individual or a group that identifies differently in some way, racially, culturally, or religiously. It's a reference that has always struck me as insensitive, inherently divisive, and vaguely sinister. However, I think that we're all wired to compartmentalize in this way. It's part of our involuntary brain circuitry to do so. We learn how to disguise it as we age and mature. We veneer it, but it's there. And if something happens to scratch the surface, then as Tag Team said in song lyrics back in 1993, whoop, there it is. Kids are so much more honest in this regard, either because they're too young to conceal it or because they simply don't think they need to. When I was quite young, the other was a witch. In fact, this particular witch was the other to my friends as well. Now, to us, a witch was an old woman who lived alone by choice or by necessity. And to our way of thinking at the time, witches could accumulate bonus points for being especially witchy. For example, if her house was old and decrepit, bonus points. Relatively isolated, bonus points. Spider webby, bonus points. If she dressed in black, bonus points. Had cats, bonus points. Had a black cat, mega bonus points. Her real name was Mrs. Pickens, by the way, but to us, she was a witch. Hence, she was the other. Now, Spike wasn't a witch. But where she lived, how she lived, and how she dressed... Sort of pre-goth. And the fact that no one could remember seeing her without sunglasses even indoors qualified her as the other to some, even though she had a classic white-bread job. Spike was a mailman. In those days, you were a mailman, even if you were a male lady. People on her route saw her all the time, some elders every day even. And she always seemed to enjoy conversing on common denominational subjects like the weather, sports, or the rising cost of first-class mail. A few even put Christmas cards for her in their boxes on the last day mail was delivered before the holiday. All this, the fact that she lived alone, kept to herself, didn't attend social functions, dressed in dark clothing even on summer days, always wore sunglasses, rarely engaged casually out of uniform, and searched through antique shops for old 78 records. Made Spike the other to more than a few. For some, even her age made her the other. She looked like she could easily be of high school age, but she hadn't gone to school in Enfield. Some said they thought she might originally be from Rhode Island. Had she gone to school there? Had she graduated? Some thought she must have a high school sheepskin to hold down a government job. No one knew for sure. And the Fed wasn't about to give out her personal information. That just added to her mystique. It was hard to tell whether or not that perception bothered her. It certainly didn't change her. Still, she must have suspected what others thought and how others felt. She had never been seen with a man, or with a woman either, for that matter. And what about her mother? Where had she gone? What had happened to her? Was she gradually decomposing in the cellar like Norman Bates's mother in Psycho? A huge hit at the Strand, by the way. The tagline about no one being admitted into the theater after the first ten minutes of the film had people lining up at the box office to buy tickets for Miss Delaney. Spike seemed unfazed by what others saw, thought, assumed, and speculated over. But you really never know. 
the old saying, still waters run deep, comes to mind. Will we always have the other? I think so. Will the other always know that they are the other? Probably. Will it bother them? Maybe. Some might enjoy it. If you're listening to this, are you the other in someone else's eyes, or is someone else the other in your eyes? Just asking. We live in a disposable world. If something breaks or stops working properly, throw it away and buy a new one. That wasn't true back in the day, however, when my parents sold TVs as part of their music store business. Back then, a TV was basically a heavy glass cathode ray tube surrounded by a variety of other attendant electronic components encased in a heavy wood cabinet. It was regarded as a genuine piece of furniture. If your living room furniture showcased maple, for instance, then you wanted a TV with a maple cabinet to match. Likewise, stereo phonographs, which consisted of a turntable, an AM-FM radio, and speakers in heavy wood cabinets also had to match the room's decor. These electronics weren't disposable at all. They were investments. When your TV or stereo stopped working properly, you'd call Gatto's Music to schedule a service appointment, when a technician would usually put things right by coming to your home and replacing a few of the TV's myriad vacuum tubes, the predecessors to transistors and solid-state circuitry. If the TV couldn't be repaired in situ, the technician would then transport it to my parents' store, where it entered the domain of Harry Martin. I don't use the word domain without intent. The back room, a.k.a. service center, was Harry Martin's fiefdom. And he was its chief fief. It was a small, dark room. The only natural light came from a frosted window in the back of the room, away from Harry's workbench. The window looked out on an alley, however, so Harry worked in permanent twilight. This didn't seem to bother him much. Harry was content as long as he had a soldering iron and his unfiltered lucky strikes. Harry had chain-smoked all his life. His addiction even woke him out of a sound sleep a couple of times a night so that he could take a few drags. Everything in his universe, his house, his car, his clothes, his hair, even his skin seemed impregnated with that stale cigarette smell. His small mustache and his fingers were nicotine brown. Even in an age when most everybody smoked, Harry stood out as a dedicated smoker. My parents' store was on Spike's mail route, so she came in every day, but she would make a special stop every Friday after work to check out the latest releases, because she knew that the singles and albums were replenished every Thursday by the rack jobber from the nearest record distributor. Sometimes, she would buy guitar picks and guitar strings as well. My parents didn't sell musical instruments, but they did sell instrument accessories, like drumsticks, saxophone reeds, and such. Spike didn't often buy records, however, because most pop music wasn't to her taste. She preferred vintage blues over rock. She asked my mother one day if my mother thought the record distributor might stock her kind of music for different markets within his territory. My mother said that she didn't think so, but she would ask Roger, her rack jobber. Meanwhile, my mom suggested that Spike should ask Harry in the back room because she knew that Harry listened to old 78s. 
it turns out that Harry Martin was a living, smoking encyclopedia when it came to vintage blues guitarists slash singers with an extensive collection. So he and Spike hit it off immediately. Every time Spike came into the shop to deliver mail, she'd have a brief word with Harry. He even eventually invited her over to his house to peruse his old shellac 78s, which he was methodically transferring to recording tape because of their value and fragility. Spike would bring her guitar, Harry would drag out his, and they'd spend a few hours together playing and singing along. After a session, Harry, normally a pretty reticent guy, would talk at length to my parents about Spike's knowledge and her talent. And that's how I came to know that Spike might be exactly what the French townies needed, if she could be enticed to join, that is, and if she could be enticed into playing rock. We shelved the idea of approaching Spike for two reasons. First, there was no reason for her to say yes. Second, she had every reason to say no. Until we had a repertoire, there just wasn't much point. So we went to work on a song list. We rehearsed twice a week trying to acquire one new song at each rehearsal. At particularly good rehearsals, we'd pick up a couple and maybe start on a couple more. At other rehearsals, we'd come up empty. At the end of a month, we had eight. Twist and Shout, Lua Lua, The Twist, Wipeout. Boy, did we miss having a guitar on that one. <laughs> Can't help falling in love. Uh, surfer Girl, I Saw Her Standing There, and Let's Dance. On which Patsy would replace the line, Hey, baby, won't you take a chance? Say that you let me have this dance. With... Hey, baby, won't you take a chance? Come outside and pull down your pants. He promised he wouldn't do that in public, but we had doubts. Anyway, at that point, we figured we had enough for one short set. Maybe. We lengthened some pieces mostly by asking Tommy to play piano solos or by playing through a song two or three times. Don't worry, they won't notice if they're dancing, became our mantra. Another tactic was to stretch a tune by slowing the tempo. Can't help falling in love sounded positively dirge-like. At that point, we felt ready to try for Spike. If she wasn't interested, fair enough. We'd just continue to build our song list and look elsewhere. My first thought was to enlist Harry Martin in an ambush. We'd find some excuse to rehearse at his house on a night she was coming over to listen to some of his old wax. He wouldn't go for it. He said that it was dishonest, that he wouldn't lie to her for us, and that she'd see through it in a minute anyway. But he didn't turn us down either. He said that he'd tell her that he knew of the band through me. True. And that he'd ask her to listen to us just to provide us with some advice on starting out. Sort of. True. He was okay with that. In fact, he agreed to record the rehearsal on his fancy reel-to-reel Akai tape recorder, saying, It'll give me something to do. On the appointed night, we dragged all of our equipment and our sound system over to Harry's house with the help of Tommy's dad's station wagon. John had light-fingered the Fullerton Jazz Band's electric guitar and amp just for the occasion, with the understanding that he would return them the next day. Which he did. We set up in Harry's smoky front room, the Fermi guitar and amp conspicuously just off to Tommy's side. Joanne sat with Harry as an observer. 
Spike arrived in her trademark black and her sunglasses. Harry introduced me and invited me to introduce the rest. She asked a few questions about how we got the idea to start a band, if any of us had any musical background, when and how often we rehearsed, who and what our musical influences were, and what our intentions were for the band. That last one really threw us at first, but Tommy stammered out the right answer. To entertain people by playing good music well. She liked that response. You could tell. She actually looked impressed by what Tommy had said. So, she took a seat and said, Show me what you got. We started with Twist and Shout. Tommy Lead. Followed it with Can't Help Falling in Love. John Lead. Then The Twists. Patsy Lead. And finally, Wipeout. My Lead. We played Wipeout through once, and then Spike stood up and waved us to a stop. Up to this point, she had said nothing. We figured she may have heard enough. She walked over to the Gibson next to Tommy and looked at it. Then she said, I presume this is for me? We just grinned sheepishly. She turned on the amp and tuned the guitar for a minute. Then she turned to Tommy and said, You can't play Wipeout on a piano. Just play chords. Then she turned to the rest of us and said, From the top, and counted us in. It sounded amazing. When it ended, she just nodded. Then, Tommy asked her if she knew Fun, Fun, Fun by the Beach Boys, a tune we had started to work on with Tommy singing lead. She said that she had heard it, but that she knew Johnny B. Good better, and that it and Fun, Fun, Fun were basically the same tune with the same exact guitar opening and a few simple Beach Boy chord changes. She told Tommy that she'd play the opening guitar riff, and then he should come in with Fun, Fun, Fun lyrics. She kicked it off. Tommy sang the lyrics, Patsy faked his way through it, and John sang with Tommy on the choruses. Just as we were coming to the end of the song, Spike called out a key change, repeated the guitar lead-in, moved to John's mic, and started singing Johnny Be Good. Sister Karasina would definitely have orgasmed on the spot. We played through the rest of our song list with Spike singing lead on Twist and Shout, Harmony and or Unison on I Saw Her Standing There, Let's Dance, and Surfer Girl, and a blazing guitar solo on Louie Louie that went on for a good five minutes. That was the clincher. When it ended, everybody just stared. Silence. More silence. Spike finally broke the spell by saying, Thanks, guys. That was fun, as she replaced the guitar on its stand and turned off the amp. Tommy asked her if she could give us some suggestions. Her response was, Add to your song list, find a guitar player, and start booking some gigs. I jumped in at that point and asked her if she'd be willing to rehearse with us again, just until we find somebody. She said she would if she didn't have anything else going on. So, that's how it was left. While we were packing up, Harry put on his latest blues compilation tape, and both he and Spike took out their acoustic guitars and started to sing and play along with some Howlin' Wolf. Tommy called his dad, who ran us and our equipment back to his house, where we brought everything downstairs to his rec room. We were all still pretty jazzed by how good we had sounded with Spike, so we took some time to calm down and decompress. Patsy, always free with his parents' money, 
wondered if she'd take money to rehearse with us regularly so that maybe we could gradually rope her in. That led to a contentious discussion which paired those who were in favor because we could increase our song list more quickly, build up our confidence for performing live, and possibly convince her to buy in against those who felt that she might object to being treated as a hired gun and that we'd probably become too reliant on her with no guarantee that we could depend on her. Their thinking was that we'd be better off to find someone else now, thereby not having to reinvent the wheel later. Patsy and I were in favor of the payer-to-rehearse position, while Tommy stood on principle. When all eyes turned to John, he said, Ask Joey first. So we did. She sided with Tommy in principle, so it was a Mexican standoff. All eyes shifted back to John. Finally, he spoke. I've got an idea, he said, but I need some time to think it through. If we can get her to one or two rehearsals, I think it might seal the deal. That's all I'm going to say. You'll have to trust me on this. Patsy asked, when you say seal the deal, do you mean that she'd join the band? John nodded. Maybe. We all nodded in agreement because we all really wanted her in the band, and because it seemed some alien had taken control of the shy, wouldn't-say-shit-if-he-had-a-mouthful guy who used to be John. We picked up a few new songs during the next few rehearsals, notably Shout, Patsy Lead, Return to Sender, John Lead, I Get Around, Tommy Lead, and The Wanderer, John Lead. We even persuaded Joanne to try Johnny Angel, which sounded really good, but despite our compliments and protestations, she wouldn't sing anything else. We rehearsed with Spike at Harry's house a month after the first rehearsal with him again recording, and once again the band took on a whole new dimension with her guitar and voice. She liked our new songs and made some very helpful suggestions, especially regarding the harmonies on I Get Around and the background vocals on The Wanderer, which consisted mostly of shoop-shoops and wah-wahs. John had cautioned us about not saying anything that could be interpreted as pleading, persuading, bribing, or begging. We didn't. We were all astounded by the changes in him. As he grew in confidence with his voice as a performer, he also grew in confidence with his voice as a contributor, and we were mightily impressed. Six weeks to the day after our first rehearsal with Spike, we met with her for the third time, but this decisive rehearsal was at Tommy's house. Harry was invited, but said he'd pass because Tommy had said his mom wouldn't allow smoking in the house, and Harry would never be able to go for long without his lucky strikes. Spike was surprised to find all of us dressed in black from head to toe when she arrived. We were following John's instructions to do so. When she commented about it, John covered by saying that it was dress-up week at Fullerton, and our class had chosen Back in Black as its theme. Before she could ask a follow-up question, Tommy sidelined her with a question about the chord progression for one of the new tunes we had just started working up. We then warmed up on some of the songs we'd already rehearsed before moving on to the newer stuff. The last song in our warm-up set was Twist and Shout, on which Spike sang lead. Just as she was about to count it off, John interrupted, I've got an idea about making this our opening number. We all like it, and we all think we sound really good on it. But it needs something. Something flashy. So let's try this. 
Patsy and me stand in a line with Spike in the middle. We did. Now, me and Patsy face toward the back. They did. Okay, piano and drums, you guys can't face the back, so just lower your heads and try to hide your faces. Tommy and I did. Now, we play the intro just like this, but when each of us starts singing our individual ahs, me and Patsy face front, and then you guys who are seated raise your heads and look front. That way, when we get to the fifth ah, we're all facing front and singing. Get it? Okay, I'm going to introduce the band with my back turned before the singing starts. Now I'm going to assume that you know the opening of Twist and Shout, and for those of you culturally deprived Cretans who don't, go to YouTube and worship at the altar of the Isley Brothers. It starts with a four-measure instrumental introduction. Those four measures are then repeated with an ascending note sung and sustained on the first beat of each measure until all voices are in when the introduction ends. Then, the first verse begins in a call-and-response pattern. Spike counted it in, and we all started playing the four-measure instrumental intro. It was a little difficult for me and Tommy to play and hide our faces, but we managed. Because Spike was the only one facing forward, she didn't see the rest of us behind her back, putting on dark glasses identical to hers, which John had supplied to us before her arrival. He said something about them falling off the back of a truck. The final touch took place during the instrumental opening when John's voice came over the sound system, saying, Ladies and germs, you got it made with Spike and the Shades! And the singing started right then. When the tune ended, Spike took a moment to think. All right, but there are three conditions. The first is that the name has to change. I don't want my name used because I may change my mind at some point. The second is that I won't rehearse more than once a week, maybe not even that often. You guys work up some new stuff on your own and then call me, but I'll help you pick out new stuff. And speaking of new stuff, that's the third condition. Some of it has to be blues. I'm not going to play back-to-back bubblegum. Then she looked at us. There was a millisecond of silence before we all started tripping all over each other to agree. Once things quieted down a little, she said, Get some gigs. We'll get better faster if we're not just playing for each other. At that point, Joanne, who had been a silent, almost forgotten observer, spoke up. We've got one for the student government snowball in February, and one for the St. Patrick's spring fling in April. At a rehearsal where Jaws had repeatedly been on the floor, they were again on the floor after Joanne's announcement. I managed to stammer out a few fragmentary words like, When? And how? Tommy finally came up with a whole sentence. How could they hire us if they never even heard us? Joanne picked up a paper bag that was resting near her feet and withdrew our two rehearsal tapes. They have, she said. Spike said, Nice going. Then, while still addressing her, Spike said, The band needs a sweet, girly voice for some of the Top 40 stuff. And that's not me. The guys say you can sing, so it'll have to be you. Agreed? We all nodded including Joanne. At that moment, the Fab Four Plus One became The Shades.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Frenchtown. Remember that new episodes drop on Mondays at midnight, so please continue to join us. Frenchtown was written and produced by Jim Gatto. The principal readers are Dana Schatz and Jeffrey Anbinder. The technical director is David Keith. Introductory and playout music was written and performed by Lisa Spike Norman. Whoever You Are and I'm Coming Home Again were written by Jim Gatto. It's Almost Tomorrow was also written by Jim Gatto based on an idea from Lorraine Nelson. Additional musical recording was provided by Chrissy Gardner, Ryan Gardner, Gracie Price, and Megan Keith. The Frenchtown graphic design is courtesy of Carolyn Kamerska. Special thanks go to associate producer Kathy Keith and to Lorraine Nelson, Stephanie Levine, and Elaine Bissett. Frenchtown is a fictionalized memoir. Although some of the places mentioned existed at one time, they are either gone now or vastly different from what they were over 60 years ago. The characters are composites of friends and relatives I once knew, but they were not modeled on individuals who actually existed. Any resemblance to people or places is unintentional and coincidental. The entire contents of Frenchtown is copyrighted. For further information about Frenchtown and its contributors, please send inquiries to frenchtowninfo at gmail.com.
Yet 